I had way too much coming back. I had a friend years ago who went away for uh, about three months because he uh, leave because he was unwell. But when he came back, his first sermon had 90 points, 9-0. I, I don't have that. 50 maybe. Uh, for some reason, the, uh, the lights up here aren't working this morning. So I'm not sure that I can actually read. I might, might turn around and read the, uh, the overhead because it's a bit dark up here. But starting in John 14, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit who dwells in us and leads us into all truth. Accomplish your plans and your purposes this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. John 14 from verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of, for the, sake of the works themselves. Jesus is basically saying that the works he did were evidence that he was led and empowered by the presence of God. He's saying the works show you that the Father's in me and I'm in him. John 5, 36, there's a couple of the scriptures that says this. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. John 10, 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. And 38. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus was making it very clear that he was a man empowered by the presence of God. One more, John 15, 24. It says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. He's basically saying the works that I did are such an evidence that when you see them, you're without excuse. Pretty heavy-duty thought, huh? Go back to uh, John 14 and verse 12. Says, most assuredly, now that term most assuredly, it's very interesting because it actually in the Greek is the word that we get amen. Amen. We sang it a zillion times, which is wonderful. And it literally is an emphasis marker. It introduces a statement that's pivotal, of pivotal importance, that's essential in interpreting the overall passage. So when Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he's actually saying verily, it's translated in some translations, truthfully. It's not like he lies other times. It's an emphasis. It's saying, pay attention to this because it's important. 
He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. He's saying this is pivotal to understand the whole passage. Jesus says the works that he did were evidence that he was led and empowered by God. And he says that we who believe in him are going to do the same works. I'm going to come back to that, but why does he say, because I go to my Father? You ever thought about that? Have you read this, like me, just passed over that part and went, yeah, okay, that's cool. He basically is saying that we'll do the works because he's gone. But it's pivotal to understanding the whole passage, and that is that when he goes, he gives us the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 and 17, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he dwells with you and will be in you. Does that sound familiar? The Father's in me and I in him. The Holy Spirit's in you and you in him. Why do we do the works that he did? Because he's given us his spirit. And he dwells in us. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus is actually saying, I go to the Father because when I go to the Father, I will send the helper. While I'm here, he hasn't been sent. So Jesus goes to the Father and he sends the helper who then dwells within us so that we can do the very works that he did. You still with me? So let me say this. We are led and empowered by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit the same as Jesus was to do the same works. Think about that for a second. All this is my introduction to get to the point I want to make, which will come later. First 50 points of my sermon. So, good question. What are the works of Jesus? I'm sure you were asking that. We're supposed to do the works that he did. What are the works of Jesus? Biblically, there's a number of things. I want to just throw three at you this morning real quick, and then we're going to apply some of them. First, Luke 19.10 says he came to seek and save the lost. Now, what does that mean if we're going to do the works of Jesus? We're going to preach the gospel, which Ben shared last week. Very well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. But let me add something. We preach the gospel with supernatural signs and wonders confirming. That's what Jesus did. There's something supernatural. Now, don't think about this about Jesus. Think about this about you. I get to do this. I get to preach the gospel and God's going to confirm with signs and wonders. Why? Because the supernatural, the Holy Spirit is in me, just like the Father was in Jesus. That's pretty, pretty amazing, isn't it? 
Second thing, that are the works of Jesus, 1 John 3, 8, says that he came uh, for the purpose the Son of Man was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So he came to destroy the works of the devil. We're going to come back to that. Third one, John 18, 37. Jesus says this, Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you said rightly, I'm king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to bear witness to the truth. That's what the Bible says Jesus' purpose was. Sometimes we like to pick one or two. All this is to get to this point. I believe I'd like to combine the last two of those, destroying the works of the devil and bearing witness to the truth. When we talk about spiritual warfare in a Western context, or a Western world context, a friend of mine from, uh, originally from South Africa who lived in Mongolia, who now pastors a church in Germany, was talking about this in an equip uh, just the other day. Spiritual warfare in a Western world context, doing the works of Jesus. Most of us are aware that in a non-Western world, demonic activity is much more obvious. If you've lived places, Mary and I have lived in Africa, we've traveled into Asia, people are, tend to have much more uh, occultish uh, beliefs and things, and there's much more obvious demon manifestation in places like that. Uh, my friend Rob was talking about uh, when he lived in Mongolia, they have a demon that is depicted eating the heart and the kidneys of a man. Number one cause of death to Mongolians is heart disease and kidney disease. Pretty obvious. Uh, we see a lot more of that. that. What I'm saying is not that we don't see demons manifested in Western culture, but after 1,800 years of Christianity, in most of the Western world, demons tend to hide more and are less obvious. Doesn't mean that demons aren't manifest, but sometimes what we deal with is much more the result of demonic activity than actual demons being manifest. You still with me? I'm getting to the point I'm trying to make. Just because demons tend to be less obvious that they hide more doesn't mean that they're not still at work. So we're often dealing with the result. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. From verse 3 to 5. I don't know why I'm even looking at my Bible because I can't see it. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh or the natural. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing, another translation of that is lofty opinion, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What's it saying is that we're battling against arguments, opinions, and lies of the devil. We're not, talk, we're not battling against opinionated demons. You have an opinion, we'll cast a demon out of you. <laughs> but we're battling against the results. Now, those things, arguments, opinions, lofty opinions and lies, lead to fear, conflict, and division. That's the ploy of the enemy. So often we see the result, we see the fear, we see the conflict, we see the division that comes about, and if we're not aware, we think that's natural, and we begin to focus on people rather than realize that that's a result of something demonic. Are you with me? I'm going to get in trouble here. COVID pandemic was a key illustration of this. A lot of opinions, a lot of arguments, a lot of stuff that led to fear, rapid fear, and division. We see the fruit, we see the results. So what the devil does often in Western culture where we live is he gets people to believe things that aren't true. He gets us to believe things that aren't true. Let me throw an example of this. I'm going to get in trouble here. Again. I'm good at getting in trouble. If I were to ask you, are homosexuals born that way? The vast majority of the world believe that they are. And I would venture that many of you in this room would believe that. See, what happens is that if enough people believe something, in our thinking, it becomes true. If enough people believe something, in our thinking, it becomes true. Irregardless of whether it's true or not, it becomes, thinking in our, it becomes true in our thinking. Now, we can go another step further, which I'll do in a number of weeks. But basically what the devil does is he then uh, weaponizes democracy. You get enough people believing something, and if you don't believe it, you get attacked. It becomes a weapon. You still with me? Yet the evidence, what I want to tell you here is since 1990s, scientists have been looking for genetic evidence for homosexuality. They've been looking for a gay gene. They've done studies on twins. 
in 2019, they did a study with six million homosexuals, and what they found was no genetic evidence. There's nothing that indicates that people are born gay. Why do so many people believe it? And what difference does it make, you say? Let me tell you, the difference is if any kind of sin is how we were born, then there's no hope for change. An adulterer can say, I was born this way. It's not my fault. A pedophile. How about just a thief? All of a sudden we're saying that because I was born this way, there's no hope for change. Yet 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or adulterers or, or idolaters, nor homosexuals or sodomites, next one please, nor thieves, haha, I think that's why I threw that in there, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse, people stop there. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. He's saying some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were thieves. But you've been changed by the blood of Jesus. devil wants us to believe things that aren't true. Big picture, but he uses the same strategy on us as individuals. He tries to get us to believe things that aren't true. Interesting, knowing what I was going to preach, the words that were shared, the songs that we sang were a declaration of God's for us, God's truth for us. Devil says, this problem is too big for you. You can't handle it. And if I agree with that, I give it authority. See, the devil has no authority unless we give it to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we say, ah, no, this problem's too big for me. Of course, I can't handle it. But the Bible says his grace is sufficient. The Bible says he's for you. Or the devil says, you're not wanted. You're not accepted. You're insignificant, as the word was shared this morning. And if we agree, but the Bible says that you're accepted in the beloved. The Bible says that God gave his son 
to die for you because he loves you. The devil says you won't have enough. But the Bible says that God will take care of us. He's our source. Do you understand? All those, while they're not demons that attack us, they're the result of demonic activity. So how do we fight? I'm going to give you real quickly five quivers in our five arrows in our quiver. Five quivers. We've got a whole lot of quivers. Five arrows in our quiver. I want to just talk real briefly about those. How do we do warfare? How do we fight in a Western context? Now, when you when there's a demon manifest, you have authority over that, you can deal with that as well. But sometimes we don't recognize that we're still in a warfare. Five things real quick. First is a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Mark 9 from 14 to 29, we're not going to read it, but it's a story of a guy comes to Jesus with his son and I'm mean, to the disciples and they're not able to cast out a demon. And if you read the story, uh, they ask Jesus why. And, and Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. but he had just cast out the demon without praying or fasting. Have you read that? Why? Because he lived a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. He was ready. He didn't say, ah, there's a demon. I better go fast and pray. He lived a lifestyle of praying and fasting. We face an opposition when we're when we're moving with God to see his kingdom advanced, and if we don't recognize it, we're unprepared to do the warfare necessary, or we're unprepared to recognize that it actually is an opposition of the devil that we're facing. So we need to develop a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Maybe you don't like fasting. I don't care. <laughs> I'm serious. Do it anyway. I don't like praying. I don't care. It's part of the arrows in your quiver. Do it. By the way, we have a prayer time for all of us on Wednesday, which was an announcement I was supposed to make earlier, and I forgot. <laughs> Fits in real, real well here, huh? Uh, Wednesday, we have a time of prayer together as a, as a church. Uh, normally, we meet here. We're not able to meet here. We're meeting at... There we go. You, Marnie, you're wonderful. At the, uh, the Mish, which is 37 Frederick Street. Huh? It's opposite the uh, chapel, the City Mission Chapel. It's, it's on the other side of the street. And so we're going to meet there. Uh, let me encourage you to join us. Let me encourage you, if you don't normally fast, figure out some way to fast between now and then. You don't have to fast the whole time, but uh, do something. Okay, enough of that. Rush, you've gone from preaching to meddling. 
second quiver in our arrow is confidence in Jesus' position. What was that? Second arrow in our quiver. Jet lag. I'm going to blame it on jet lag. I got up at four this morning. Uh, got a lot done before eight. Not because I'm spiritual, but because I'm on a different time zone. Ephesians. The point is the second arrow in our quiver is confidence in Jesus' position. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality of power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Jesus is seated at God's right hand, and all his enemies have been put under his feet. Now, that's an indication. It's a picture from the Old Testament of kings. When they conquered, their enemies were put under their feet. I've asked Andrew to come help me. Andrew, would you come? So they would parade the, the foes in, and they'd come in, and they were required to bow down, all the way down, bow down before the king, and the king would literally put his foot on the neck of his enemy. He's very, very gracious to do this. Okay, and then they were taken and thrown into a pit. Thanks, mate. Jesus has been raised above every enemy. Every enemy is under him. Yeah. You need to understand that. There is no enemy that has any comparison to the authority of Jesus. Now here comes a good point. Point three, arrow in our quiver not quiver at our arrow, is that not only do we need to be confident in Jesus' position, but we need to be confident in our position, in him. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And we could just stop there. Even, sorry, thanks, Marty. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Your position is that you're seated with Christ. Who is where? seated at the right hand of the Father whose enemies are under his feet, you are seated with him and therefore you are seated above all the enemies that come against you. Yeah. I think it goes like this. When we voluntarily bow before him, 
he raises us up. When we oppose him, we become conquered. He raises us up. Instead of throwing us into a pit, he seats us at the very right hand of the Father in Christ. All enemies are below our feet. He who believes in me will do the works that I do. If you don't believe this stuff, you can't do the works. If you don't believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, if you don't believe that in him you're seated above all powers, what happens is that fear comes in if you don't believe that. And we think then it's our natural ability or or our human effort rather than him. When we're confident in our position, we don't submit to the enemy's lies. See, the enemy only has access where we give him authority. We give him authority by agreeing with his lies. He says this problem's too big for you, and you agree, and he has access. He says there won't be enough for you, and you agree, and fear comes in, and he has access. We can't submit. My friend Rob Forbes leads a church in Munich. When he moved there, he was met by a number of the pastors who welcomed him to the city, and they said, we just need to let you know that there is a dark cloud over the city. There is a opposition. The history of the city has the, uh, the Catholics attacking the Protestants, and that's a cloud that, that affects the city and affects every pastor who comes here. And Rob said, not me, it doesn't. I'm seated above that. I don't agree. Yet many of them, the other pastors who did agree, ended up burnt out, overwhelmed, because they gave the devil access. The word of God says that I'm seated with Christ in heaven. I don't care what people say is the ruling principality in Launceston. It doesn't apply to me because I'm not under that. I'm not submitted to that. I'm submitted to the king of kings. I'm going to get finished here. I'll get real quick. Fourth arrow in our quiver is truth. John 8, 32. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's truth. What is truth? Very simple. Jesus is truth. When you meet the living Jesus, who is the truth, then you get set free. It's not trying to convince ourselves of things. It actually comes down to meeting him. A Christian leader somewhere said this, I dare not have an opinion about myself or others that God doesn't have. 
you dare not have an opinion about yourself or someone else that God doesn't have. Because then you're agreeing with the devil and not with God. You're agreeing with the lie. You're giving authority to that. Last one, for the sake of time. Fifth quiver in our arrow. I said that for Lance. Arrow in our quiver is worship. Very simple. Second Chronicles 20, 21 to 22, tells this wonderful story about uh, when they consulted, they appointed the, who was singing, and they sent out the singers, and they went out before the army, the worshipers, uh, and sang praise the Lord. And what actually happened in the story is that when they got there, the enemy had killed themselves. <laughs> they didn't even have to fight. Why? Because of the present worship. It's not worship is not a tool. It brings the presence of God. The presence of God overrides the enemy. Worship means that we come into the presence of God, but we no longer focus on the enemy. We focus on the greatness of who God is. What does it mean for us as a church? And I'll close with this. First, it means don't be passive. Don't believe that we're not in warfare, that there's not an opposition simply because we don't see as much de demonic manifestation. Just because you don't see a demon manifest does not mean that there isn't an opposition that is spiritual. Sometimes we think in our, in our way of thinking that if it's a demonic thing, I'll see a demon manifest. But let me say, in Western culture, we're often fighting against the results, the lies of the enemy. And then secondly, we need to fight. Johann preached a few weeks ago about not settling. Not settling down. Guys, there is an opposition. God's called us as a church to be a light, to see his kingdom advanced in this city, in this state, in this nation, in the nations of the world. He's called us to do that. We're Foolish if we don't think there's an opposition. So we have to be willing to fight. Fight for ourselves, for our families, for each other, and for our city. Sometimes we stand with someone else. But we can't stand for someone else. There's a point where we have to actually take a stand. A friend of mine was dealing with a young lady who had been, unfortunately, terribly abused sexually as a young person and uh, had just a, a bitterness. And she just, actually, it was a pastor 
and she had turned her heart against God and against the church and had just gone into all kinds of demonic stuff, was totally demonized, eventually came back, but they were praying and they struggled. It wasn't getting breakthrough. And uh, they actually shared with her something and, and realized that she had literally cursed herself by saying, I will never forgive that. And they said, look, you have to take authority. We can't do it for you. You have to renounce that thing which you've said. Because you've agreed with the devil and given him access to your life. And she did. And literally within minutes was totally delivered. Sometimes we want someone to do it for us. But sometimes... We're the ones who've given legal access to the devil. I'm going to ask the, the team if they'll come back. I know it's getting late, but we were late getting out, so the kids need more time out there. I'm usually concerned that the teachers are wanting a, a break. I'd like us to do the uh, blessing one more time. Okay? And we're gonna, I'm going to ask you if you'd stand. I'm going to ask you if you'd do this as we sing this. Would you make it a statement? It's God's statement for us that he blesses us, but it's also our statement for self. If you've agreed, if in this time this morning you've realized that you've agreed with some things that, that the enemy has said, Will you just renounce that? It's not a big deal. Just say, I renounce that in the name of Jesus. And you take back the authority that you've give, given the devil. But then will you also make it a statement for your family, for our city, de declaration of God's blessing? Can we do that?